The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is David Dow. David is a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. Uh, and David, today we're going to talk about e-commerce. And GSA recently issued their uh, draft solicitation for a proof of concept, and I use that term in quotes, for e-marketplace service contractor, I guess you would call it, uh, pursuant to Section 846, you know, e-commerce initiative platform language that uh, was enacted a couple of years ago. So, you know, Section 846 is gotten a lot of attention um, out in the federal procurement community in the market, uh, the potential to bring e-commerce commercial solutions to the federal space to enhance the ability of the government to acquire commercial goods and services is something that yeah, obviously definitely needs to be explored and taken a look at. You know, the Section 846 set the sort of framework for that um, implementation and review um, and we're sort of in the midst of that. So, David, like, first of all, can you talk a little bit more about the statute itself, Section 846? Sure. Uh, Section 846 of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2018 called for GSA to explore on a pilot basis the use of e-commerce platforms, uh, of which there are at least three primary types that, that could be used. One is an e-commerce site. A second would be some form of e-procurement. And finally, and perhaps most relevantly to, to us today, would be a e-marketplace right. concept. So the statute itself, the definition is very broad to include all three of those types. And just a little bit more about those types. And these definitions were actually you know, adopted by GSA to try to stratify or otherwise categorize, right. yeah, distinguish the different types. Um, there's no requirement in the statute that they do that. Is that right? Correct. Right. right. So – a little bit of e-marketplace, that would be akin to? Like an Amazon. Right. Okay. And then e-commerce would be akin to? Um, I think a good example of that. I mean, if you were to go to a like a like an office depot or something like that and you say, I want to buy some products there, right. that, that right. store, or if Staples, you will. Or yeah, yeah. somebody the like that. The existing store has a, yeah. a website. And they have the website. Like, so you'd like, and then the e-procurement um, is an interesting type. That's the, I think the software software as a service right. sort of business software. Right. So examples of that would be oh, I think something like Kayak or something. Yeah, like or Travago right. or something that would sample other websites and gather the information. Yeah. Or SAP Ariba has business right. rights by purchasing software. So those three definitions, and you have Section eight forty six with a broad definition that encompasses all those. And what, what was GSA going to be doing here? What are they doing in the midst of doing? Yeah, I mean, it, sort of there's the theory and the practice. In, in theory, uh, what GSA is going to do is explore those three types, right, on, on a pilot basis. In practice, I think what we see with this draft solicitation is GSA is starting with one type, uh, starting with the e-marketplace and going to move forward on that one and theoretically move on to the other types at a, at a later point. Um, but on a pilot basis, at least for now, the only one we have is the e-marketplace. And that 
pilots like a five-year contract? Yeah, it's, right? a, it's a base one year with four one-year options. It allows for the possibility of other contractors to come on later, to be on-ramped later, um, so to add to the pilot. The contemplation right now is multiple awards, at least two uh, marketplace providers um, with, again, the possibility that more might be added um, and perhaps one or more might fall off. There's also an off-ramp provision. So the statute was broad. It seemed Congress's intent was to go out there and sample what's available commercially. What are the sort of risks, um, issues, implications, you know, unintended consequences of going this in, in this direction? Sure. I, I think, you know, the main risk would be when you have any program as large as that, any sort of five-year scope program, which again is as long as a typical service contract would be, is that you really do start to neck down and foreclose meaningful consideration of alternative channels. Uh, because once you dedicate enough time and energy to this one type, even if you were to add, let's say a, an RFP comes out a year or two to add a different type, right, to look at like e- the possibility of e-commerce uh, sites, you're now not going to have the same window of comparison between this pilot and another pilot. Uh, so you can't really do an apples to apples, certainly time frame wise or performance over time or customer satisfaction over time that you would get if you did everything all at once. So uh, I think when I had looked at 846 originally, I thought if you looked at the spirit of Congress to say, look, let's take a look at what's out there for e-commerce. Let's sample you know, possibilities. Again, not defined in terms of tying GSA's hands to particular types. But GSA did identify there were several different types of vehicles that might be used or approaches that might be used. And instead, I think what we've ended up with is – or the path we're on is a path to look only at one option, uh, maybe multiple flavors within that option, you know, multiple vendors within that option, but a decided preference for a particular type. We're almost begging the answer um, to the very question that we have in front of us is which one is best? Well, the only one we're going to look at will by definition be best because that's <laughs> all we have. Right. And is it also, if I recall, the statute also says that, you know, they had phases, right? And they did an implementation plan in March of 2018, right? Correct. And then in May of this year, 2019, the second phase was supposed to be market research in there um, and addressed. And then, you know, the phase three is sort of implementation and also putting out guidance. So what's the implications of testing one of the types that they've identified on any guidance that's developed. Yeah, I think you're not going to have, or GSA is not going to have the ability to develop wide scope guidance, right? Because the guidance is going to be informed by whatever was determined through the pilot, and the pilot's only looking at one thing. So the guidance will be limited to one one experience. I think what the statute had contemplated, I don't think it happened, was that the market research that you'd referred to would have been broad and encompassing, and perhaps more would have been learned about the various alternatives. I think when you look at this draft RFP, and we may get into some of this, but some of the questions that are posed for the sort of final phase of the selection process indicate that that market research might not have happened because there are questions being posed or might be posed to the offerors for the marketplace contract that should have been vetted during the market research previously. And so I would I would read from that that those questions never really were vetted out in the market research. Right. Well, one of those interesting you say that because one of the things that this market research phase that we just that I did just finished in the resulting report was a review of standard commercial terms and conditions, which I think is important. Um, and your thoughts on this in the context of the statute because the statute uses similar language to the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act, like you use commercial terms to the maximum extent practicable. 
And, you know, it says in the statute, review those commercial terms in the context of government, you know, requirements, right? Because there's sometimes you try to do as commercial as possible, but sometimes you can't do certain things just because it is government not, right? Right. So, I mean, I don't know if you saw anything. I didn't see anything in the, you know, the market research that indicated here's what we reviewed and how we and what we found. And then it's almost like they're doing that in this phase and they're limiting it just to the marketplace. Yeah, correct. Um, you know, I, the draft RFP is styled as a as a Part 12 procurement, a commercial item procurement. And, and as you mentioned, one of the, the mandates under the FAR, whenever the government uses a commercial uh, item contract, is to be consistent with whatever the commercial market does. And so, you know, normal research, market research for any commercial item contract should take into account what is typically done today in the market so that we as the government, when we're procuring it, don't violate that or don't unduly restrict what would otherwise be the commercial practice. So the agency, when it's going forward, the contract the, needs right. to know what the commercial practice is already. Right. And then the flip side the of that is like they might be doing things that are standard commercial practice that even though they got you know this, the, the direction is and the, and the Congress wants you to do it to the maximum extent practical commercial, there's some things that the government just can't do because of other statutory requirements and imperatives, whether – their financial or trade agreements act or other things that commercial firms don't have to worry about. Correct. The, gov- the government is always the government, right? right? And so, you know, that market research to determine what is the practice in the commercial market has to precede the contract so the government can make that election. Can we or can we not do a commercial item contract? It may be that there are certain things done in the commercial market, let's say buying things routinely from China, that federal agencies just can't do. Um, right. And so therefore, the government has to understand what's the commercial practice and can we then follow it? There might be circumstances where the government can follow that practice and has to do something else. Right. And when we come back, I just got a follow-up question there. Just why wouldn't you lay those out? Is it is it a question of being concerned whether commercial firms will be willing to do the work if certain government unique requirements are, are articulated? My guest today is David Dowd. He's a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. I am Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is David Dowd. He is a partner at Mayor Brown LLP, and we're talking about the GSA's recent release of a draft RFP for the e-marketplace solution, our proof of concept, five years. I think it's an addressable market of six billion, at least what they talk about in the RFP, or the draft RFP, a six billion dollar market on an annual basis that's potentially addressable. David, you know, one of the things we, you know, the question I sort of asked at the end or posited was this idea that you know there's lots of potential terms and conditions that are you know in the context of government requirements that you know could have been there, may not be there. Have they just not figured it out? They're almost like asking as you brought up in the last segment, asking for feedback on these things now as opposed to when they're contemplating doing a contract. So, Yeah, I, I guess a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, first, just to make sure that the audience knows kind of where we are on this, we're talking about an e-marketplace contract through which government users can place orders um, with a government purchase card and acquire commercial off-the-shelf items through that. And so we're talking about, you know, bottom line – a theoretically large volume of relatively small purchases, right? And when GSA has valued that, they've used the figure of $6 billion as as being the amount of spend 
that goes through government purchase cards that's not you know efficiently being captured. And perhaps there could yeah, be more not than going that. through a contract, right? Or whatever, not going right. through a contract, and therefore perhaps the government could do a, a better deal or get a better deal if that were approached in a more systematic fashion. So you know, my first thought, similar to your point about you know five years. And, I, and I'll agree, $6 billion is a pretty significant program. It's going to attract all kinds of interest in industry, and, and it has. Uh, the Section 846 initiative has attracted a lot of interest in industry. And so I, you know, just looking at it from the outset, one, I, I think regardless of, of what the terms are, there's going to be interest on the part of industry in, in seeking a contract like this. Second, I think the government is always better off and the taxpayers are better off when the requirements are defined ahead of time rather than determined during the course of a competition, right? You're going to get a more robust, better informed competition if the requirements are on the table. Some of those requirements may make make sense, some may not, but at least they can be vetted. For example, through this draft RFP process, they can be vetted. I think instead what, what I see when I looked at the draft RFP, and particularly there's an attachment in there that calls for a live test demonstration, that's where a lot of those questions seem to be about what the terms might look like or how is it that the company does business. The kinds of things that I would have thought would have been captured in the market research that was done before the RFP ever was issued, but under the current scheme won't be answered. The government won't see those answers unless and until they have a couple of offerors that are in that last phase, that live test demonstration right, that's phase. The, yeah, that's sort of at the end of the It's at the very end. It's after the, it's after the proposals have otherwise been evaluated and right. you've been found to be acceptable. You then proceed to this sort of phase two piece. And the phase two piece, the live test demonstration, is one of only four factors that go into the award decision and it's by far the least important one. Um, and yet in many respects, it's the most important one because that's where you really find out how does the marketplace work? You know, what – manner does the vendor select products? You know, what sort of fees does somebody have to pay to be listed? Or what, um, to the extent they can get that question answered, and we can get into that. Um, but certainly there's a question there the government is seeking to find out, what if any additional fees does a vendor have to pay to the marketplace provider to get a preferred status in the search results? Which is a very interesting question but it's not going to be discovered until some point quite far down the road. You would have thought that would have been a requirement to be addressed right up front. Yeah, let's just pull the string on that. I mean, I had some other questions, but that's you brought you brought up that question about how much do you pay to get, you know, I guess more favorable listing. But it seems to me that kind of practice, although it may be perfectly appropriate in the commercial market, there are government policies and statutes and regulations that address, you know, the Anti-Kickback Act, right? And it seems to be raised questions about whether it's consistent with the spirit of the anti-kickback act. And you could explain that a little bit. Sure, um, it's at least contemplated, I think, by the very question in the uh, live test demonstration guidance that the marketplace provider might have some form of arrangement in which vendors that sell products, let's say we're talking about you know laptop computers, would be able to or might need to pay some additional amount to the marketplace provider to get a, a better search result. And therefore, what, what you've got there is products that are being sold to the government, someone who's selling those products has to give some additional amount or additional value to the intermediary with the government in order to get more preferent or more favorable treatment. And that sort of in a, in a literal sense has been sometimes viewed as a, a kickback, uh, such that the Anti-Kickback Act would apply. 
Um, that, now, that statute would require there to be an improper purpose, and that's sort of a, a nuanced question that may be difficult to get into. But certainly if you look at it from the spirit of things, right? Does well, it doesn't the go with the value. The government's not necessarily making a decision on with the value of the particular product, but just the fact that it comes up and sooner or well, right. As it should, right? right? And that may well be a, a commercial practice that's acceptable in the commercial practice. Again, you know, private industry is not subject to the same sort of rules um, or even policies that uh, the government is. But yes, I would assume that if, if someone is paying a fee – to be listed higher in the search results, they're going to be listed higher in the search results. I mean, that would be sort of what you'd expect, in which case what looks to be a more favorable product might just be a product for which that vendor has paid an additional amount right? and therefore not a preferred product. You know, other kinds of questions that are underneath that, which I, I don't think are even picked up by the live test guidance questions, but also you start to wonder is, you know, does a vendor have to sign up to be on the marketplace provider's commercial business as well as its government business in order to participate? Um, what sort of terms does that vendor have to agree to on the commercial side in order to be listed on the government side? I mean there's a, there's a lot of questions um, that are raised by any approach in which the marketplace provider has the kind of control that the marketplace provider will have um, such that it's controlling access on the part of the government user. You know, the government user doesn't see what that vendor's price is unfiltered. It sees what that vendor's price is through the marketplace. And what goes in behind that price is is not transparent to the government. So you're touching on something I wanted to get your thoughts on, and that's the issue of organizational conflicts of interest, part 9.5 of the FAR, not to be all regulatory or anything, because um, heaven knows we don't want to do that at all. But just the idea, like, you know, there are lots of questions swirling out there just generally about marketplace providers and their role in setting the terms of entry in the market and fees and all that sort of stuff. At the same time, they compete um, on the very same – against the third-party suppliers who they're setting the rules for. They compete directly against them selling you know, their products as well as the use of the data. And I know the statute has restrictions on the use of the data by the marketplace provider. But there's all kinds of other aspects of that potential conflict or parent, whatever you want to call it, you know, cross-purposes – approach, which might be okay again in the commercial market, but in the federal context, I know it's a significant policy issue and a, you know, full and open competition. Part of that's, you know, level playing field. Thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, the, the RFP, the draft RFP, contemplates that the uh, marketplace provider would provide to the government uh, what we typically call an organizational conflict of interest, or an OCI plan. Um, OCI's uh, concept that's in the Federal Acquisition Regulation has been for a long time. But there, there are three basic types. Uh, I won't get too far into the weeds here. One is um, uh, an unequal access to information type uh, conflict. You know, a contractor knows something by virtue of his government work that will give it an advantage someplace. Uh, a second is impaired objectivity. And this goes a little bit to the search results, I think, we talked about. And that is Government's getting advice from some contractor, but that contractor's advice might be impaired somehow because it has some financial interest in the, the outcome or the use of that advice. And then finally, there's a biased ground rule, OCI, and that is a circumstance where a contractor is somehow able to set the terms of a condition of a competition in which it'll participate later. Basically, writing the spec for which you can compete. Sure, sure. Um, and so here, you can imagine the marketplace provider could have. All of those uh, types of conflicts. Um, in fact, by design, given that what the marketplace really is here, it's almost inevitable that the contractor would have uh, one or more of those conflicts. Right. 
And doesn't the plan, though, really just focus on that unequal access to because the statute ultimately that was passed, 846, and then some subsequent reinforcement of the idea that that transactional data that's associated with the third party suppliers cannot be used by the marketplace provider for their own competitive purposes? That's pretty general, and they. But is, isn't that really the one that that's yeah, targeted? That, that's the, the other that, two aren't. Yeah, uh, that's the main one that's the target because uh, Section 858, I believe it was, of the Defense Authorization Act for uh, FY19 picked up on that concept um, and made clear that the marketplace provider, for example, here, shouldn't be able to use that information in, in, a, in, a, in its commercial activities. And so that's the one of the three conflicts that's really addressed um, the request for the plan is not specific to that, but that's really the focus throughout right. the RFP. And now. David, at that point, we got to take our next break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking a little bit about the conflict of interest. I'm going to ask you a no-cost contract. What is that? That's one of the things that's contemplated here. Um, my guest today is David Dowd. He's a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. I am Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My name's Roger Waldron. My guest today is David Dowd. He's a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. We're talking about GSA's recent draft uh, solicitation RFP for e-marketplace, five-year contract. I guess, you know, if it's an addressable market of $6 billion a year, that's like a potentially $30 billion, would you say? Yeah, potentially. That's how you do the math, That's right? how you do the math, yeah. Okay. Same, okay. same <laughs> constant growth or yeah. constant rate. Yep. And, and when we took the last break, Dave, we were talking about organizational conflict of interests and the plan and what's required. And I think you you were hitting on something I thought was very interesting is that this, the focus seems to be the data. and there's But there's other those other two conflicts of interest that aren't sort of... Yeah, correct. Know. There really is a focus on the use of the data. But the two other kinds of organizational conflicts of interest or OCIs that um, are recognized under the FAR and I think are implicated here would be the impaired objectivity and the biased ground rules. And the impaired objectivity one, again, is that concept that the government's getting some form of advice or guidance from a contractor and the contractor has some stake in that advice. The, outco- the use of that advice in a particular way could benefit the contractor. And in here, you know, by design, we've got a marketplace where the entity that's the contractor, the marketplace provider, can sell its own stuff and third-party stuff. Um, and the draft RFP is pretty clear that the government shouldn't be reviewing uh, products, but the government can rely on – in fact, it contemplates the government's going to use product reviews and how those product reviews are, are staggered or ordered or the search queue or wh- however you want to put it. The contractor is going to be advising or steering the government to particular products through use of the search tool. And the question raised is whether or not that advice – is impaired in some right. way. Is the contractor's objectivity in listing products or reviewing products? Well, that could be also the idea of being be paying for better placement, right? Correct. That, that, they ask that would that. be sort of the, yeah. the, the best example of where right. you know the use of what appears to be a neutral search tool ends up preferring a product as far as the government user is concerned when that might be based on just a fee that's paid from the vendor to the marketplace right. provider. And then, and then the other one is the bias. The bias ground rules. The bias ground rule one is that concern, again, that a contractor might somehow set this, the ground rules, set the stage for a competition in which it's going to participate. And here, by design, I think, you've got the marketplace provider establishing what the market is, establishing what the terms are for that market. 
right? Limiting what products are available. Then competing against those same products, right, in the marketplace itself. That to me raises a significant question and, and difficult to see how it could be mitigated of a conflict of interest because that contractor is in a position to, to essentially write the terms of the contract. Um, and you can see this in, in the live test uh, demonstration guidance, those questions we talked about that come up in yes, the second phase. Yeah. A lot of the, the details about how the marketplace will work and what sort of terms, may not the actual terms, but what types of terms the marketplace provider sets up aren't even going to be learned by the government. First of all, not maybe not at all because those questions aren't mandatory. They're just an illustrative list of questions. Um, but the answers, the government won't find out the answers to those things until it gets to that last phase of the evaluation, by which point we might be down to you know two companies and, and it, because it's a pilot project, they both might get awards. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And then, of course, it's a pilot program. This is where we started, a pilot program, but it's a five-year uh, term. Once the marketplace gets up and going, first of all, it may last the full five years, which is unusual for a pilot. Um, but going forward, that's how the marketplace will probably work, in which case that contractor has developed the terms for what's ultimately going to be the contract down the road. So um, that's pre-selection just in terms of you know, just the, the solution at the right. end of the day because all the rules will – Will have been established right. by the marketplace provider as we're going through the, the process. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's a, a flaw in the design um, in part driven by the fact that the marketplace provider can compete in that same market. I mean that's really a challenge. If it were only third-party products, then you might not have that same question. You'd still have a question about listing fees and all that sort sure. of stuff. But you know, anytime a contractor is able to list its own product and then provide a competing product and it has access to the information about the pricing of that competing product and it's competing against that product, any advice it gives the government about you know which of those two is best – in some sense, is going to be impaired. Right. Um, it's certainly a significant risk of being impaired. And so the draft RFP contemplates that, that the various offerors will give an OCI plan that addresses these conflicts, but it's not at all clear to me at least what's going to be viewed as acceptable in terms of a tolerable conflict because some of it's just set up by the nature of the activity that we're engaged in here. Um, and that is a marketplace in which you know a contractor can sell its own stuff uh, while also – listing and competing against third-party products. Okay. I think we beat that to, to death there, <laughs> David. But another question about the RFP is that GSA has styled this or identified it as a no-cost contract. So first of all, I guess what is that in this context? Because uh, the government is paying one way or the other here. Sure. And you know, what are the implications of that, if any? Sure. Well, the RFP is styled as a no-cost contract on the theory that um, the marketplace provider won't itself receive a payment directly from the government for the particular products that are issued, and therefore there's no cost to the government from the contract with the marketplace provider. There will be a cost to the government, of course, for all the orders that are placed under it. But let me, I guess two points that Barrett mentioned there. One, because it's a no-cost contract, what you don't see in the evaluation criteria anywhere is any consideration of cost. Um, and so, you know, typically in a government contract, whether it's a commercial item contract or not, there will be, and by statute, there must be some consideration of what the cost of the government is going to be. Um, sometimes that's a very important consideration. Sometimes it's the dominant consideration, but it's always a consideration. Here, because GSA has styled this as a no-cost contract, uh, they've rationalized their way to no consideration of cost at all because there's no payment that's going to be made. So. 
you then say, as, as you suggested, is the government going to pay? Well, of course the government's going to pay, right? I mean, when that search is conducted, you know, in the marketplace, and the provider identifies three potential products to meet the government's needs, the government agency is going to place an order for that product under the terms of the RFP. That order is going to is deemed to be a contract with that um, third-party provider or the marketplace provider, if it turns out to be yeah, the marketplace Yeah, and the purchases provider. are limited to below the micro-purchase right, threshold. Right. right? Um, so we're talking, you know, at this point, though granted that threshold may rise over time, that'd be my prediction, you know, as this pilot goes forward, whatever that threshold, you know, 10000 now, but it'll rise. So by the end of the five years, you can imagine that threshold could be $100,000 or maybe even more than that. But those smaller purchases are deemed to be Contracts, you know, directly between the agency that's buying it and whoever it is, the provider of the product, you know, whether it's the third-party seller or it's the marketplace provider itself. So there will be a cost to the government. And what we don't see here, though, is any consideration of two things. One, what those kinds of costs would be. And two, how, if at all, that third-party provider's cost differs under this arrangement and some other arrangement. Um, you just there's no there's no transparency at this point into what the prices would be to the government. But at the same time, GSA is also asking for uh, or including contemplating a 075 percent sort of industrial funding fee that is remitted to GSA for managing the program. Correct. Yeah, so so sort of similar to the multiple award schedule program, there's going to be you know that cost is certainly on the table, right? So right, right. So it's technically not a no cost, right? <laughs> Uh, it's not of no cost. The government's going to get that uh, amount, I guess. Um, but yeah, that using agencies will pay a fee, right? Yeah, embedded in the price of all the products they buy. All right. Well, David, you know what? We're already up on the break, and what we're going to do in the next segment, we'll just go through some. There's a number of other areas of interesting questions. This is almost like this RFP. You could give it to a law school class and just issue spotting. It's fascinating stuff because it is new and different. Right? It is, absolutely. And it's a, a different commercial model in the context of, you know, the government space and what does that, you know, what are all the issues that could potentially come in play? You know, we you know we did the organizational conflict of interest. I haven't seen very many no-cost contracts, but, you know, this, is, I guess, is one of them. And when we come back, get your thoughts about this idea that they've created separate contracts for each transaction versus the umbrella contract. What's the dynamic there? Uh, my guest today is David Dowd. He is a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is David Dowd. He's a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. And, uh, David, one of the interesting features, and it's been talked about by GSA, is sort of presented by GSA to their credit consistently, is this idea, at least to their credit, they've communicated it consistently, I guess, over and been transparent over time, is this idea that, you know, we're going to have sort of multiple contracts for, I mean, not, I mean, in the sense that each micro-purchase under a platform, e-marketplace platform, is treated as a separate contract. And so you'll have the contracts with the platform providers, the e-marketplace providers, and you'll have separate contracts for each of the um, orders that are placed below, and again below ten thousand dollars of micro purchase threshold. What are you know your thoughts on that, or just you know what do you think about when you 
think about it from a sort of contracting policy legal perspective? Sure, many things. Um, I, I guess first off, the RFE does make clear that the agreement with the marketplace providers, again, a no cost, we talked about what that, that means or, or might mean here. Um, and it also makes clear that the orders that are placed under it uh, using the government purchase card would themselves be the contracts. So, you know, we talked about a figure of $6 billion. What that contemplates is there would be, you know, $6 billion, again, with the inclusive then of the fee that uh, GSA is going to get for running the program. But there will be $6 billion or so worth of potentially potentially little purchases, you know, $9,000, $9,999, $400, you name it. You know, a a large number of very small purchases adding up to potentially, you know, $6 billion or so uh, if GSA's valuation is, is correct. And again, this is all these orders would be under the micro purchase threshold, currently $10,000. And so when I think of that, I, I sort of first think kind of where we started, and that is um, in terms of acquisition with the notion that there would be a micro purchase threshold, right? And the government purchase card, which is used to implement that. And typically, you know, historically, when I thought of that, I thought of you've got a government contracting officer uh, who's got access to the charge card, a government charge card, and the government controls who has access to those and how much they can spend. And the government has a need. Um, let's say it's a you know at an Air Force base, or let's say it's somebody at the Coast Guard. You know, has a has a need for something that the government doesn't have handy, um, and therefore wants to go or needs to go off to a place like Office Depot and walk in and buy something right there on the spot and use the government purchase card, you know, that credit card, and buy something. That's sort of what I think of as the typical micro-purchase threshold, sort of the one-off, small-value thing, involves some legwork, but it's to compensate for the fact that the government doesn't have handy, you know... A uh, contract or something to get it off. A contract or something to get that and and needs to get that. Um, um, And again, it's small in dollar value, and so we want to, you know, keep the burdens light. Uh, for that sort of ad hoc purchase, right? So that's what I think of traditionally as the micro-purchase threshold. I think here we've now got a, a consolidation or a merge of, of two very different concepts. We've got that very small buy, uh, which used to require legwork, and now we've got this online marketplace, which is just a click, a search and a click. And now those little purchases, those $500 or $5,000 or $9,000 – Clicks can happen again and again and again and again, such that when we turn around, you know, six months into it, we might find out that our our friends at the Coast Guard have put six hundred and fifty million through the marketplace under the government purchase card, right? And and at some point, you say to yourself, "Wow, that's a lot more than a micro purchase, right?" Um, yes. Again, you know, we're measuring it all on sort of each one is a separate contract, and each one by definition is distinct, and therefore each one is potentially it will be below $10,000. But when you look at it in the aggregate, they could be well over the micro-purchase threshold, right? And one of the challenges is with micro-purchases, the government doesn't have to follow the normal procurement rules to make a micro-purchase, right? And certainly there's a competition aspect of it. That's one. But there also would be uh, country of origin, socioeconomic Clauses, you know, all kinds of uh, clauses and requirements that would apply to larger purchases are now not going to be tracked uh, or certainly applied. And if the government is spending $650 million to buy certain kinds of products, you know, should the government apply 
things like socioeconomic clauses to those purchases. You know, at some point, the dollar amount becomes enough in the aggregate that you would think the government right. might want to apply, right. just like it does right now to right. other purchases. So GSA would respond sort of like, well, we're, we're, we're trying to get this data through this, you know, these are they're already doing $6 billion a year with a purchase card just out there sort of scattered. This will sort of inform the government to be able to do better things, I guess. But it seems to me, I get your thoughts on this, that, that yes, I, I think that's a good idea, that part of it. But And we haven't even really talked about what the implications are for pre-existing programs like the GSA Schedules program because it is creating a double standard where people can go buy stuff under the schedules and it's been vetted and got compliance and all that kind of stuff. And then you can go use this platform and the transaction sizes are very similar, you know, thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of small transactions and how we deal with that. But there is some opportunity here to try to discipline those purchases and bring them into like compliant, or you could even use this platform, whether you could combine this with, you know, the e-procurement model, business rules around it and limit, you know, what people see, because this isn't this kind of shifting any compliance whatsoever to the extent an agency decides they want to only buy trade agreements. And isn't it shifting it to the buyer as opposed to the, platform provider or in the case of GSA, GSA you know, is responsible for vetting for the schedules and then people rely on that. that- yeah, correct. I mean, one of the things you'll see in the in the draft RFP is that there is a request for information from the market, the would-be marketplace providers as to how they vet products, right? But there's no requirement. And again, because each purchase would be under the micro-purchase threshold, there isn't uh, a requirement that the marketplace provider set up a compliance regime, like for example, Trade Agreements Act compliance or something like that, the kind of thing that would be covered in a in a GSA multiple award schedule contract. So it's not the marketplace provider that's watching out for those kinds of issues. In fact, at one point the draft RFP says that the the contractor should provide a bunch of information, including the country of origin if available. So it sort of implies it might be, it might not be, uh, you know, available. So in any event, I don't think the the burden is imposed on the marketplace provider, at least in this version of the RFP to do that kind of diligence yeah. uh, and set up that compliance. So yeah, I do think if it's going to fall to anyone, it's going to fall to that using agency who will now need to do that diligence. And, you know, if you look at it on the, on the positive side, you might say, okay, well today who's doing that today? If someone walks in, you know, with a government purchase card and makes that acquisition, do we even know what happened? Right. You know, will we know? And so this, this contract at least offers the ability to start to see that at least in right. a more meaningful way. I think the question would be, and this is a pilot, so you know, let's hope it, it rolls forward um, and informs further practice. But when we find out what's happening, will we take action in response to that? Like, for right. example, if we find out that there is an acquisition that repeats every day, the same sort of purchase is made. Will will a using agency see will that people and say split huh, requirements as a result of this to avoid having to worry about small business or things like that? Right? There's all kinds of other questions. Um, it it seems to me one of the um, the well, philosophically one of the sort of issues that sort of people are troubled about is that it's creating a formal channel built on a, almost a selling point of not having to worry non compliance. Right, as opposed to purchase card, yeah, I got to go out and buy something, so I go do it, and it doesn't apply. Here, it's a formal contracting channel that's being elevated 
in a certain sense, equal to schedules, NASA soup, and other things. I think that's one of the big concerns out there. Yeah, I think I think that administrative convenience is one is going to be one of the main attributes of this. Um, I mean, you look at it, an online portal where you can do a quick search and hit hit the purchase button. That is going to attract a lot of a, a large number of users. Right. Um, and the fact that there are no burdens on those purchases, it may be a, quite a bit burdensome now to go off and find something and use a government purchase card. But if you can just do it online quickly from your desk with a quick search and see everything you, that you would hope to see, you want to see, it is going Regardless to of whether it's trading or anything Regardless, like that. And right. you don't have to worry right. about any of that. Right. I mean, that, that, that may well be the perception. You don't need to worry about any of that because it's a micro-purchase, yeah. even if you've done it you know, 18 times uh, right. over the course of a two-month span. Right. Um, you mentioned small businesses. I did want to make one point here. And there's a line in the RFP that talks about how it's a matter of national interest that uh, small and diverse subcontractors participate, both in terms of the social and economic benefits. And that goes really to this large question that we started with, which is like, who are the entities here? Like the third-party vendors, they're they're sort of treated, you know, in, in ambiguous ways throughout the RFP, but not clear that they would be subcontractors. In fact, right. if the contract's going directly to them, they're probably not a subcontractor. And yet, that the RFP does say that the government wants to encourage, as a matter of national interest, but how are they doing it? But, but as it stands, there's not getting any information on who a subcontractor is or any ability right. to really meaningfully influence. Last that. quick question. So the, the, you had you, you, you're, you made me think of something. Just the idea, like talking about those repetitive purchases. So you have a marketplace provider who sells their own product, um, and repeated sales leads to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, potentially to that marketplace provider. Pursuant to this contract, how can the government say that each one that's already under contract? How can, can can the government say each? I guess it can. I I don't know. We'll see. You know that, that that's those those purchases don't aggregate to implicate you know compliance regimes or requirements like the Trade Agreements Act. Yeah, I mean, calling this a no cost contract doesn't you know make it so right. I mean, if it turns out that the vehicle used to acquire that say. $10 million worth of products or something from, from a market the marketplace place. provider itself, this would be the contract vehicle, you would think, yeah. uh, under which those sales would be recorded. Otherwise, those sales aren't recorded anywhere in particular. Right. Right? Um, but it, you know, the difference between a third-party sale and the, and the marketplace provider sale there is that the marketplace provider is there solely because of this. Right. I mean, this is the contract vehicle by which they're there, by which that, that – access is made by which the sale is, is certainly facilitated, to now say, well, it's not really this contract, it's some separate contract, seems to me a little bit of an artifice. I mean, it really is that a con- sale made under right. this contract. Right. And David, on that note, we have to end the show. I want to thank my guest today, David Dowd. He is a partner at Mayor Brown LLP. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. 
And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know eight out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.